Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away. Just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Our guest today is George Bent, the Sydney Gauze Childress Professor in the Arts. George joined WNL in 1993 and has chaired the Art Department, the Medieval and Renaissance Studies Program, and the East Asian Studies Program. He also served as Associate Dean of the College. His research interests lie primarily in European art from the medieval period through the Renaissance, and his latest project is a digital reconstruction of the Italian city of Florence at the end of the 15th century. George, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I learned a while ago that you did not begin your educational career intending to be an art historian. What inspired your interest in art history? Uh, I was threatened by my mother. <laughs> I was uh, I went into to, to college as an 18 year old wide eyed not really knowing what college was about. Uh, I was at Oberlin, and even before classes began, students had to sit and listen to presentations from you know administrators and faculty. And for me, I was sitting in the audience listening to the dean of the college tell first year students that we could major in anything that we wanted. And I thought that was great because I loved history so. Even before classes began, I knew I was going to be a history major. I spent the first year and a half at school taking a steady dose of history and economics and politics. And right before registration for the spring term, I received a phone call from my mother who said, son, I love you. If you don't take a class in art or music, we're going to pull you out of college. The wrath of mom. The wrath of mom. <laughs> well, she was a musician, so there was no way I was going to take a class in music. And I could barely draw a straight line, so I wasn't going to take a studio art class. So art history, which had history in it, sounded like a good compromise. I took a class with a, a, a professor named William Hood, who was a famously good lecturer, but also ticked off a lot of people because he was opinionated and he didn't put up with fools. And he hooked me. He absolutely hooked me. Um, he convinced me in a class on Northern Renaissance art that by looking at paintings, I could weasel my way into the past and really see what people were doing rather than just imagine it. So it's like one professor. Just one, yeah, one person. Well, now that you are a professor, um, how would you distinguish between art history and other forms of history? Oh, um, th wow, what a question. Um, actually, I think the distinctions are quite narrow. A lot of what I do would be considered social history because I'm interested in how images inform ritual and behavior and response. So, yeah, I do connoisseurial stuff. I can tell you who, you know, the differences between two different pictures produced in the period that I'm interested in. But really what I'm interested in is how human beings respond to paintings or sculpture, what they're doing in front of them. And that to me that that's that's you know that's standard historical stuff using images to get to to the end point so art art historians are known to do their best work in the dark oh dear would you share some of the challenges of teaching art history to today's undergraduates 
Uh, well, the first one you allude to, and that is um, they're exhausted all the time. So it doesn't matter if you're teaching early in the morning or late in the afternoon. And not someone's, a pandemic someone's falling asleep, right? Someone's asleep. So that's one thing. One of the reasons why um, I'm kind of gregarious in the classroom is just to keep people awake in the dark. You have to do something. But really, the, the biggest cha uh, challenge is relevancy. A lot of students, and it's not just art history, it's, it's anybody who teaches anything from you know, the, the late medieval or early modern period, making it relevant to the 21st century is a big challenge. Students today wanna know why they're in your class and what that class is gonna do for you later on. So frequently I'll find myself in the middle of a lecture pausing and reflecting on how this theme that we're seeing in the image from 1375 has a lot to do with who we are today in 2021. And it's hard to do that sometimes, but at other times, it's absolutely as easy as pie. I was gonna say that. Is there any way you could give us an example? Sure. Um, in 101, yesterday, we talked about this object called the Critios Boy, maybe one of the earliest works of, of classical sculpture that we have from the early fifth century BCE. That work, we think, was probably produced in response to invasions of Greece from Persian armies. And those invasions were so horrific that they basically leveled most of Athenian society. The entire metropolis of Athens was destroyed. A lot of people were you know, casualties of that, many deaths. Um, and the response of the Greeks was to move out of an archaic period in w which is characterized by these goofy smiles that you'll see on sculptures and is replaced by frowns and, you know, deep sorrow. So I compared that to 9-11. Wow. When you have a deep cultural rift that, that fractures who you are and how you think about the world and, and your concept of hope for the future, it, it plays on you. Think about where we were on September 10th, 2001. It was a different world for, for us in the United States. We changed. Our behavior changed. And as I was saying this in class yesterday, I looked around and looked out at, at a bunch of kids with masks on. I said, look, you know, we're, we're in another seminal moment like this. I mean, this, is, this has changed who we are. The, the way that we approach life, the way that we approach our art, the way that we approach our music, it's conditioned by, by what's happening to us right now just as it conditioned the way that the Critios boy was made in 490 BCE. Wow, what a way to bring it home. It was hard. I actually kind of choked up a little bit. Yeah, not easy to talk about, that's no. for sure. So let's shift a little and discuss your current research project, Florence as it was, the high-tech digital recreation of late 15th century Florence. You've been working on it for five years and have involved more than a dozen WNL students and along with staff from WNL's IQ Center and also collaborators from around the world. How did you conceive of this project? It began in uh, the chapel in October of 2016 when Ed Ayers, who was then the president of the University of Richmond, came to speak at WNL about his digital project called in the Valley of the Shadows. It's a Civil War project in which Ayers was looking at letters written to and from soldiers on either side of the conflict of the Civil War and tracing their movements across North Carolina and Virginia based on those letters. 
Uh, to make a long story short, as I watched this PowerPoint presentation, all I could think of was how I could do the same thing with Florence because as an archivist, as somebody who's spent a lot of time looking at documents in Florence, I know that we actually have a lot of written material about that city from my period, from the 14th and the 15th centuries. So I, think, I was thinking, you know what, we, we could do this in Florence, but I'm an art historian, so I can have better images than Ed Ayers does. <laughs> so that's what got us started. It's sort of a, a competition with Ed Ayers, who'd, who'd been doing his project for 15 years. It must be 20 by now. So he's way, you know, he's light years ahead of us. But, but that's what got us started. You collaborate with others at WNL. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and you know everything is serendipitous. It just kind of you know things just kind of fell into place. Um, I started off by asking four students who I knew had uh, either art historical background or a deep connection to the city of Florence to join in this project because it uh, from the very beginning I wanted this to be a collaboration between faculty, staff, and students. Knowing that if you do research as a student, wow, you learn and you learn fast. So I wanted students to be involved. Uh, we worked with Dave Pfaff in the IQ Center, which is a modeling uh, office in, in, in the university whereby 3D models can be produced from images. And we just talked about what a digital project would look like. It started off just by, by getting a map of the city and starting to, to pinpoint places on the map where things happened and where people lived and you know events and stuff like that. But as we as the project advanced, it was Dave Pfaff in the IQ Center who alerted us to the fact that there was already technology out there that would, would permit us to make 3D models of buildings and artworks and that we could attach to those models the information that we were gleaning from the Florentine archives and from other published sources. So it became a true collaboration. I depend on Dave Pfaff for, I can't even tell you how much I depend on him. He, he drives the whole technological wing of this project, and you know he's a true partner in all of it. So students, staff, faculty, other collaborators from around the world, definitely a group effort. Let's get into the nitty-gritty for a minute. It sounds like you're collecting historical data, images, and mapping points, and there are clues everywhere as to what Florence looked like six centuries ago. But in, in many ways, it must have been a very different place. How do you collect all of this information and then stitch it into a digital recreation of a city? Okay, so this gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. Um, the first thing we did was to get our hands on a 16th century map that was produced by a monk named Stefano Bonsignori, who drew and then, and then engraved a pretty accurate city map of Florence, uh, whereby the roads of that city come close to corresponding to the roads that we have now, according to the Google map. So Bonsignori did a pretty good job in 1584, yeah. But it, it's an elevated map, so that means that you can see the height of buildings in relationship to each other. Well, that's a pretty good little um, model for us, little template. It tells us what the major monuments were in the city in 1584. So you can use that as a starting point. We have paintings from the period. We have paintings from the 19th century that were produced by artists deeply saddened by the fact that there was an urban renewal project going on in the 1880s and 1890s to just clean out some of those dirty, infested alleyways 
that had made the medieval city so interesting, but the modern city a health hazard. So they were painting these old sites that are now gone to us, but we have, you know, we have paintings of them so we can see what the buildings look like. There are also photographs that were produced by the Alinari family and the Anderson family back in the 19th century. So we've been able to use some visual data and information to give us some tips. But then there are also written sources. Um, there were Florentines in the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century, and the 20th century who are writing about what they were seeing in these buildings. So we go back and we read them. It's as simple as that. We just go back and read what was where, and we, we know where some of those objects are today. So we model the objects where they are today in museum collections, and then we figure out a way to stitch them into these models of the buildings that we're creating too. And I'm going to guess that your next question is, how do you do that? Very close. Yes. <laughs> so you want to know? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. So what we do, we take a, la a, a LIDAR scanner. It's a laser, laser scanner that, that's um, about as big as, well, there's one model that's about as big as a large wine goblet turned upside down. The model that we use is a little bit larger than that, but not much. It stands on a tripod. And it revolves twice around the tripod, and it takes about two minutes to do the one revolution or two revolutions. The first one sends out a laser beam, and the laser beam, as it rotates, as the laser beam goes out, it strikes objects, all objects that it sees in 360 degrees, and then bounces back to the machine. And the amount of time it takes for that laser beam to go out, hit the object, and then come back again, we can get a precise calculation of distance and also of shape. So we're collecting all of these data points for every revolution. Then the second revolution is um, a photographic one, where again, we're taking photographs in 360 degrees, mostly to, take, to, to get color so that we can add color to the, to the points of data that the laser is, is collecting. We'll go from position to position in a building so that we're always making sure that we're catching every nook and cranny because obviously a scanner is not going to be able to go through, you know, penetrate through a chair that might be standing in front of a column. You've got to find a way to capture that corner of the column. And then we send all the data back to WNL. Dave Pfaff and the IQ Center, working with students, will then combine all of those different positions and the data points. We'll join them together. And what we get is called a point cloud, where we'll have literally one billion points that are all smashed together to recreate solid surfaces that the laser scanner has collected and photographed so that we have colored points. Um, so that's the point cloud. It's great for architecture. It's accurate to within six millimeters per 10 meters wow. of, of shot. So you're, you're right there. But it's not a very clear image, so you don't get a, a high-resolution photograph of objects. So that's why we go to museums and we take photographs of the artworks that used to be there do models of those in high-resolution digitized photographs. And then through the magic of computer wizardry, we insert the photographs of the paintings into the point clouds of the buildings where those paintings used to be. How's that for an elevator answer? It's a great elevator answer. And and what I'm thinking about is a PowerPoint that I saw you you share. And I'm wondering if we could post that on our website sure. so that our, our <laughs> listeners can get can also have that that imagery at their at their fingertips. Sure, so that was a great. great description. So how do you digitally reconstruct what a place looked like when, say, artworks from a chapel in Florence 
have been moved to a collection in, say, North Carolina. <laughs> for, for example. <laughs> so we went to North Carolina in August because there are two paintings in the North Carolina Museum of Art we believe uh, were originally located in two Florentine buildings that we had already scanned and modeled. So we took photographs of them and then you know, worked this magic of stitching the photographs into the point clouds. But the way that we knew about them being in those buildings in the first place, the first was that we, we had some descriptions of one of the paintings in North Carolina from the 16th century. And the, the description of it matches the painting in North Carolina. So for a long time, people have presumed that the painting was in this particular chapel in Santa Croce. Um, and when we latched onto that, well, it was a no brainer that we should go photograph it. But the other painting in North Carolina has only been thought to have come from this other building called Orson Michele that we had scanned and modeled. Um, but I had written a book about public painting five years ago that included a number of panels I believed were once inside this particular building. And the dimensions of the painting in Raleigh, along with its subject matter, made it very clear to me that this picture belonged in that building, um, as did the identity of the artist. I mean, it all just fit together, you know, chronologically, artistically, subject matter, dimensions, the whole thing just fit together. So we experimented and we put it in the building and we got all the dimensions precisely and it fit like a glove. That must have been very rewarding. It was really exciting. Yeah. The entire process sounds very intense. You're recreating an immensely complicated historical monument, even if it is in digital format. Can I ask you how much a project like this costs and how it's funded? <laughs> yeah. So um, Tom Wolfe, whom some of our listeners might know of, um, wrote this great book called The Right Stuff. And in it, Gus Grissom is speaking to the other astronauts and, and he says to them, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. <laughs> and it's really true. No bucks, no Buck Rogers. You, know, you, you need money to make this thing happen. Um, we've been the recipient of a couple of grants. One came to Washington and Lee as an institution back in 2014, 2015, something like that from the Mellon Foundation that funded a variety of different digital humanities projects. We were just one of them. We received funding from the Richard Lounsbury Foundation, thanks in part to um, some really good work from Liz Holloman, a Washington and Lee alum who works there. But really, uh, it was through the largesse of two friends of the university, uh, Don and Sydney Gus Childress and George, Carol, and Catherine Overend. Uh, those two families took great interest in this project and and helped fund really most of what we do. We need to pay students to do you know, the work that they do both during the academic year and in the summertime. Uh, the equipment that we use runs you know, $60,000, $70,000, so that, wow. that cost a pretty penny. We have uh, software license fees, um, travel budgets. I mean, you, you can't scan Florentine buildings or take photographs of paintings unless you're on the road. So yeah, um, we we have a pretty significant budget. <laughs> you shared a story and even some pictures with our podcast team about how a restoration architect gave you access to a bell tower that not many people have toured. How do you get permission to work in these cultural sites? Um, this is probably the most challenging part of the whole process. 
because it requires one to cut through lots of bureaucratic red tape in Italy. So some, some, some projects were easy as could be. I sent an email to the, the abbot of a monastery out of the blue, asking if I could just trot over to the monastery and scan it. Four days later, there was a response from him that an Italian said, yeah, okay. That was it. That was the whole response. Yeah, okay. So I went to the monastery and, uh, and I tried to get in to do the scanning. And I was met at the door by a monk who said, what are you doing here? You're, you're not allowed to use that scanner here. And I pulled up my phone and I showed him the email from the abbot that said, yeah, okay. And he looked at the phone and he read the email and he goes, well, actually, that does sound like him. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so sometimes it can be really easy. Um, this latest project was for Santa Maria Novella, which is a major cultural center in Europe. It, it took us four months to get permission to go in there. I had to go through four different bureaucratic offices, two at the church, one in the city government, and then one in the Italian Ministry of Culture. I needed an Italian in Florence who was proofreading and editing my emails to make sure that I was genuflecting properly in Italian in those messages. It was, and, and even then, I arrived in Florence in early June of 2021 without really knowing I was going to have access. So I just, I just got there and prayed that it would happen, and lo and behold, it did. So some of it is just dumb luck. Some of it's just dumb, dumb luck. Some of it's day after day of pulling out your hair, writing the same old email to the same people, and praying for a response. Uh, so I, I remember uh, you posting a picture of Facebook uh, at the beginning of one of your days and at the end of that same day. And at the beginning of the day, you were covered in dirt and underneath I don't know what. Uh, and at the end of the day, you were up on top of some roof, looked like in your white linens, you know, <laughs> taking pictures, much cleaner. Um, but I'm wondering if you could share some of your pictures so that we can post them on our episode. Page. I'd be happy to. We, we did get up into the rafters of Santa Maria Novella at the invitation of the, of the church architect. I had no intention of doing that when I got there. But he saw me scanning and... He really wanted the model of his church to be better than the model of the Duomo that we had done the year before. So clearly there was some competition involved, which worked to my advantage because he said, you know, go up to the rafters and go up there. So we did. And yeah, I was covered in filth. It was over 100 degrees up there and I'd forgotten to bring water. Oh. So this is no, no joke. I got back from that month long trip and I had lost 10 pounds in four weeks and it was an unpleasant weight loss. It was tough. It was, it was hard work. But at the same time, um, not only did we do the rafters, we actually got up onto the roof, did the tiles, did the ah. bell tower. Um, How many people can say that they've seen that? Not very many. Yeah. Not very many. That's part, one of the reasons why we do it. It's just kind of fun. <laughs> mm, sounds it. Moving away from the nitty-gritty of the project, would you share what impact your project is having on both students and teachers of the Italian Renaissance? That's an interesting question. We're still trying to gauge it. Uh, we know that our project is on the syllabi of a number of college and graduate school courses. We know that we get between 150 and 200 hits every week from non-Lexington users. We know that our students at Washington and Lee who work with the project 
get a second and third look from graduate programs when they apply. And in fact, I, I saw an email from a major research university yesterday that was sent to one of our students. And the email basically said, anybody who's working in Florence as it was has a place here. Wow. So we've put students in Cambridge University in the UK. Um, and then there's some other universities I can't name right now or won't name right now that are interested in, in our current students because of the project. So that's worked well. But also, I use it in class, so I see how students respond to it. Uh, you know, I, I answered an email today from a student who wants to take a look at one of our models so that she can write a research paper. So it's, it's giving students the context to see things and to understand how viewers would have experienced a, a space or an image circa 1500. It's, it's working. So students on WNL campus and outside of our campus as well. Um, we get emails from graduate students in Germany, from faculty in Australia. I think most of our non-U.S. hits are in Italy. So, yeah, we're global. That's exciting. It is. It's really exciting. Rewarding, too. I know that Rome wasn't built in a day. How far would you say the project is from completion? It'll never be done. That means you can't retire. I know. I know. And my <laughs> wife is, you know, furious about that. Um, look, digital pro- – okay, there, there are two different ways that a digital project can be presented to the, to the world. One is the old-fashioned humanities way, which is to squirrel away all your information and write it up and make sure that it's absolutely perfect and then present it to the world fully formed. We chose the other route, which is to put things in incrementally. So when we do a building, we post it. We don't wait until we have 25 buildings and then post them all at once. We do it one at a time. Well, this means that you're constantly changing it. You're constantly building it, constantly growing. We're always adding new things. The latest edition that I think is going to go live by New Year's Day 2022 is a database. We've already entered the information for over 500 artworks. So come January 1st, you'll be able to go into the search engine, type in the name of an artist, and up on that one Signore map from 1584 will appear little flashpoints that'll show you every place where that artist had an artwork in the city of Florence. So we're always growing. We're always building. We're always writing interpretive essays. I want to go through and transcribe documents that, I know, that have been published about these different places. Uh, we're, we're translating some of those descriptions from the 16th and 17th centuries. We're going to put those up in the models. It's, you know, I'm, I'm 58. Uh, you know, if I die at 80, I'll still be working on this project. And I'll be happy doing it. We just had a conversation about this in class today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard you speak of Florence as having art for common people uh, created by artists who who weren't well known by any means. Where is this art located and how does this art differ from say the uptown art by such famous artists as Michelangelo? My period of the 14th century is not very well known uh, to the casual art lover. You've heard of Giotto probably, but beyond Giotto, no one really knows much about the 14th century. And that's what attracted me to it to begin with. There were all these craftsmen who I thought were really terrific painters. They do wonderful work, but not very much was known about them. 
So that, that kind of got me on that kick. We need to recognize that the Michelangelo's of the world, the Leonardo da Vinci's of the world, they come out of that long-standing tradition that had been forged by artists whose names have been lost to us. So going back and finding those people and kind of reconstructing their careers and understanding how contemporary viewers would have seen those objects, that's what strikes me as the historian and gets me interested in the object and the maker and the viewer. So it's it's those lesser known artists, the you know the the Jacopo di Cione's of the world, the Lorenzo Monaco's of the world. They're the ones I really like because they're not anomalies. They're not Michelangelo. They're they're the regular people, and that really excites me. It's almost like you're giving them a second life and a another look at their artwork. Oh, that's a nice way to think of it. Um, they would probably be horrified by, by the way I'm reconstructing <laughs> their lives, but but I like that. That's good. So when you speak of art for the common people, I can't help but think about your role as a teacher of art. At WNL, you teach art history at all levels. Do you have a, a favorite area of teaching and a favorite period of time? Hmm. I've taught a class on Italian Renaissance art every year, with the exception of the years I've been on leave, every year since 1993. So that's my bread and butter course. I still cannot roll out of bed and teach that class. I still need to look at my notes before I go in. I still need to look at the images that I'm going to show because it's such a rich and complicated period. There's no way that I, I can just go and talk about it. And I kind of like that. If if there was a, a, ever a moment where I just sort of, you know, shrugged my shoulders and taught a class, that would be kind of boring. So, yeah, the Italian Renaissance class that I teach is probably the one that I like the best just because it's so interesting to me. But, um, you know, I also, you know, I taught a seminar last last winter on a book I'm writing about manuscript illumination at the end of the 14th century. That was really exciting. Students were doing some research. They were writing short essays. Um, really guiding my thinking as I was writing the manuscript of that book. So that's that's always fun to do, too. The students teaching the teacher. Oh, yeah. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Uh, I got an idea for an article based on a flip comment that a student, student made a couple years ago in a seminar. Yeah, it happens all the time. How about a favorite painting? Is that like asking you who your favorite child is? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you, you know, shame on you. You know better. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny. I think of Italian Renaissance painting, which is my area, as being a job. I love it. It's a great job. That's not where I would, I would go to find my favorite painting, though. So where would you go? Um, 17th century Amsterdam. I think that the painting of Rembrandt is probably the most moving stuff that I ever encounter. Um, there's one in particular called The Jewish Bride that I think is mistitled that I always find um, uh, deeply moving, really emotional in ways that other people don't because I'm interpreting it differently. But that's the beauty of Rembrandt. He, he's producing a painting that invites multiple interpretations and it's really difficult to get your brain around what he's trying to formulate. 
And that, to me, is the mark of, of true artistic genius. So you said that the Jewish bride was not named correctly. Yeah. What would you name it? What should it be? Um, Cavalier in a brothel. I think it's a brothel painting. I'm going to go home and look that up tonight. Mm. We'll include a picture on the episode (laughs) notes page, too. Our discussion today has really opened my eyes to art history in practice. How would you say that art history fits into the liberal arts, or or how would you say that art history complements a student's education? I'm the product of the liberal arts tradition in multiple ways. My mother taught music theory and performance at Oberlin. My father was a trustee at Oberlin. So I sat at the dinner table as a child and I used to listen to faculty talk to administrators every day, every day. So I grew up believing in the power of the liberal arts and I believe it today. And in fact, when I applied for jobs in 1993, WNL was number one on my list because it was a liberal arts college. And there were other options I had, but I wanted to come here. I think art history is fundamentally important not only does it teach us lessons about who we are, not only does it remind us of where we've been or maybe even give us a sense of where we're going, it's also deeply embedded in literally every other discipline on campus. So, Ruth, if you're taking a class with me and you're really interested in geology, I can find an art history paper topic for you that that will incorporate your geological interest. If you like um, Spanish literature, yeah, we can find a ton of topics for you to write about. If you are interested in journalism, and I've had a number of journalism students who have double majored in art history, we can find a way to get that into your curriculum, your personal curriculum. I tend to think of art history as touching all of them. In a, in a way, it's kind of like a wheel. You know, you have the hub and all of the spokes generating out from it, touching the big curriculum that a student designs for him or herself. So I like to think of it as being an anchor for a lot of students. And a lot of students here feel that way as well. I love that description. So in thinking about uh, past students, have you kept in touch with many of them? And are any of them using their education in art history? Uh, I'm in touch with former students, I won't say every day, but more frequently than you'd believe. I fielded an email today from a former student. Uh, We had young alumni weekend a while ago. I basically had office hours outside and (laughs) I talked to a bunch of former students. Sure, yeah, I I see people and hear from people quite frequently. Uh, Working with the Alumni College has been a wonderful way for me to uh, maintain old connections but also make new ones, and that's been great. We have had great success in the department of sending our students to graduate programs. Um, you know, in the 90s, we were sending kids to NYU, to Columbia, to Chicago, University of Chicago, uh, Cincinnati, Maryland. We're sending students to the UK. We're sending students now to Florence to uh, study there. And, you know, again, we have students now who are applying to, to graduate programs that I'm not going to mention that are uh, <laughs> very highly placed. Columbia still is deeply interested in what we're doing. Um, yeah, so we've we've 
done quite well. It must make you feel very good. As it makes me feel great. Before we wrap up our podcast today, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your life outside of the classroom. What do you do when you're not on campus? Well, uh, for a long time, I was a pretty avid runner. So I would get out and, and you know, pull on the shorts and the sneakers and go, go run. And then my knee got cranky, <laughs> so I had to stop doing that. It got better, so I've started running again, and that's been great. But uh, my wife and I, we have three now grown children, so we spend a lot of our time in automobiles driving to and from soccer practices in Roanoke, Virginia, and elsewhere on the East Coast because they play it everywhere. Um, we've got a dog, so I spend time with the dog. We live out in Collier's Town, so there's, oh, there are always weeds to pull. You know, there, there are things to do. <laughs> so, so that was going to be my, my next question. It's an hour to Roanoke and an hour from Roanoke. What did you listen to in the car? Uh, mostly to my children speak. Um, you know, it's funny. I'll tell people the story about, you know, four days a week, five days a week, being in the car with your 15-year-old. And, you know, they stink. After, after practice <laughs> over there, they just reek. And, and everyone I talk to about this, they'll sort of hold their nose and go, oh, that sounds awful. We loved it because, uh, you know, we called it dashboard time where you just get to sit with your child. And teenagers, as we all know, are not always ready to reveal. And they had no choice. There was nobody else to talk to. So, so we would sit and drive, and I would learn things about their lives that was kind of shocking, but also wonderful. You know, they were, they were telling me who they were. So we'd listen to music, sure. I couldn't tell you what we listened to. It was usually their playlist, but... But mostly we'd talk, and it was, it was just wonderful. I miss those days. Yeah. I really miss those yeah. days. I I feel that with you. I am. Um, I always think that we you get much more out of your children when you're both facing the same direction, <laughs> instead of instead of looking at each other. You know, they're more apt to divulge. And and I can remember those those times in the car where you know they'd pull out their phone, and I'd be like. Who's more important than me right now? Because I am your transportation. All right. So you mentioned teaching in alumni college, and you've also you are you're a favorite uh, host on WNL travel programs as well. What have those experiences been like for you? Oh, they've been wonderful. Uh, I always learn so much from alumni who participate because there's a wealth of experience there from multiple perspectives. Uh, usually the people who go on those trips are experienced travelers. They've seen much more than I have and they can relate the experience that we're having usually in Italy to some experience they've had elsewhere. And that's always been meaningful for me. Uh, teaching on campus is also terrific because I'm usually paired up with somebody from a different department in a different discipline, and I've never really watched them teach before or heard them deliver their own areas of expertise. So there have been really, there have been great moments. Um, you know, Eric Uffelman and I did a, a class together a couple years ago that was just hilarious. We had a great time talking about uh, 17th century Dutch painting. He was bringing in his perspective as a chemistry faculty member who's an expert in restoration techniques. 
And I was coming at it from the perspective of an art historian who, who interprets the work. And together we really played off of each other and it was, it was just wonderful. And it wound up leading to the two of us collaborating on a research project. So, you know, we went to Luxembourg together to analyze a, one of my paintings for this book project that I'm working on. So it's, it's been spectacular for me. It's been great. So you're teaching and also learning. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mostly learning. All right. So I have one final question for you. Okay. If you had to pick a painting to represent your life, what would it be and why? Uh, wow. What a, what a question. I'd say um, it would be a painting called Lucifer, and it's by Jackson Pollock, and it's one of his early drip paintings from 1947. And I pick it because there's no subject. There's no fixed thing that drives it. It's, it's different color patterns. It's a constellation of, of movement and different themes that are non-objectively dripped onto the canvas. Um, I kind of feel as though I've been all over the place and done all kinds of different things, but it all kind of works together. There's a, har there's a harmony to it, even though it doesn't have a single shape. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. I can't wait to see that. George, it's been great talking with you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ruth. It's been a lot of fun. And listeners, thank you for joining us after class. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu lifelong, where you can find out more about George Bent's scholarship and the link to view Florence as it was. You'll also find a great selection of other WNL after class recordings covering everything from a candid discussion about stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination to the love of musical theater to a conversation about WNL's athletics. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.